Well, welcome. Thanks for taking your time. I know this is vacation month, so welcome. Glad you're here. Honey, any special news? No? Oh, yeah, we do have, well, hmm. I'll wait till the end. Uh, let's see. I think that's it. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's get started so then we can hurry up and race to our cars where it's 150 degrees. <laughs> this, is, this is one of those nights you say, I hope the lesson is an hour and a half long. And stay in the air conditioning. Okay. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who takes what is yours and brings it to our minds and implants it in our hearts and uses it to change us and transform us more and more into your image. We love you. We thank you for your relentless, unceasing work to make us like Jesus. And we pray tonight. Uh, that you would speak to each one of us uh, uh, from you know, where we are uh, in this process. And uh, I know that you'll meet us there, and you'll help us take the next step. So we love you. We thank you. We pray for your presence here, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the book of Judges, such an encouraging book especially if you read all the way through chapter 21. <laughs> uh, so I called it the book, The Downward Spiral, and hopefully now that you've been through chapter 21, if you've never been through chapter 21, or if you went through it again, you, you think, wow, this is really, really bad. You thought it was bad, and then it keeps getting worse. So Downward Spiral. Uh, let me start off tonight this way. Um, I want to give you the examples of uh, two or three people. Uh, these are um, real people, but very anonymous. Um, I know a man who is living an immoral lifestyle, and it happens when he travels. And as a result of compromising with the Canaanites in his man's soul, uh, even up until very recently, he's been dull to hear, dead to change, and enslaved by his sin. Except for him saying he's a Christian, there's really very little differentiating him from those who don't know Christ around him. And he seems to be okay with this. I know another man who struggles with great insecurities. I don't know how or why he's that way, but it's even hard sometimes to carry on a conversation with him uh, because he's too this or not good enough that. Because of compromising with the Canaanites in his man's soul, He's been dull to hear, dead to change, 
and enslaved to the lies he hears in his own mind. And he seems to be okay with that. Or maybe it's just one of the more respectable sins that you or I struggle with. Perhaps we've become dulled here, dead to change, and enslaved to the lies we tell ourselves. And sometimes it seems like we're okay with that. This is what the Israelites were struggling with thousands of years ago. This downward spiral, this sense of compromise. For the Israelites, it began with an incomplete conquest. They began with good resolutions, as we saw in Joshua 24. They were off to a good start, but they had an incomplete conquest. I don't know. Maybe it became too hard for them. Maybe it was taking too long. Maybe it just no longer seemed worth the effort. And so a new generation came on the scene who didn't know Joshua or anyone of that generation. And they began to compromise in their hearts, which led them to compromise with the Canaanites in their land. Problem, as we saw last week, was they gave room in the promised land, their own promised land. They gave room to both Yahweh and to idols. They said, you can both have a house here. You can both live here. And that was the beginning, the compromise that led to a divided heart and their spiritual temperature just started down, 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 down. And they began to be satisfied with what they had rather than what God had promised them. And so last week we talked a little bit about it's a slippery slope from living with the Canaanites to living like the Canaanites. And last week we talked about a divided heart, and we'll continue it this week with what I call the status quo of compromise. Uh, The status quo is the existing state of affairs. Uh, The status quo for a human body's temperature is 98.6. That's sort of its default That's the place where it lives. Uh, A spiritual status quo might be saying something like, while I'm sure things could be better, it just isn't that bad. The status quo of compromise. This is the condition, the situation the Israelites found themselves in. They started great. They began to have victory with the Lord's hand in all of Israel from north to south and east to west. And then the compromise began to set in, start in their hearts, went to the idols that were in the land, and they began living with the Canaanites. 
And I don't know, maybe they just said, maybe we can all get along here. The problem became living with the Canaanites led them to live like the Canaanites. And there's a cycle of judges, as many as 12 judges in this spiral. It's a little hard to see from this diagram, but I hope you can see the spiral. It's going in and in and in. And the Israelites would do evil. And so the Lord would give them over to their, their idol worship and to their naughtiness for a number of years or decades. And then they would become so oppressed that the Lord uh, had handed them over. They would cry out to the Lord. And they'd say, we can't help ourselves. Come help us. And the Lord would step in and send a judge probably like a tribal deliverer, although some of them seem to have had a greater, um, not quite national, but a, a, a farther reach than some of the others. And so the Israelites would cry out and the Lord would deliver them, and then things would be good for some number of years or decades. But the spiral continued to wind in, and it would, it would cycle around all over again. And so there was just a gradual decay of their spiritual status quo. From here, by the time the next judge came around, we were here. By the time the next judge came around, we were here. By the time the next judge came around, we were here. There's just a decay in the spiritual temperature, the spiritual status quo in Israel. And we'll look at that as we go from 9 through 21. But it was inch by inch, step by step. They were living with the Canaanites, but then they started living like the Canaanites. And as we left the story last week in chapter 8, as soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal Bereth their God. They forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. Gideon delivered them through God's mighty hand. They enjoy a period of peace, probably even prosperity. But then the spiral continues. And so Gideon's son, Abimelech, who was the son from his concubine in Shechem, starts this whole cycle all over for the next time. And so I'm going to rush, not rush, I'm going to walk through these different major judges, kind of summarizing what they did, their lives. Abimelech, if you had a chance to read that, really became the god of his own life. And selfish ambition uh, took over for Abimelech. And so a certain dullness began to settle in, characterized by Abimelech. A dullness, a spiritual dullness. Compromise removed the conviction to be concerned or the courage to take a stand. And so Abimelech begins another section of this downward spiral. 
Jephthah comes along. We have Tola and Jair. And then the Ammonites come in and they start harassing the Israelites. And then Jephthah comes on the scene. Uh, they, they First they chase him away and then they get in trouble. And so they call him and they say, please come back and help us. And Jephthah agrees to do that. And so he seems to be a man of faith. And after he... Um, engages in these mighty battles. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and he goes throughout the land, and he kills a lot of people. And then, Laurie, in your notes on page 3, she did some research on a typical Israelite home of that time. Yes, she is amazing. So there's a picture of the house, and for some scholars, this helps explain When Jephthah said, I will sacrifice to the Lord, I will sacrifice to you, Lord, the first thing that comes out of my house. What is he thinking is going to come out of his house? Likely an animal. So he's going to sacrifice an animal, which would have been an okay thing. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, his daughter comes out of the house. Now, what, what is Jephthah to do? Well, in Leviticus, it said uh, you could redeem a human. One, the, God says no human sacrifice. Two, you can redeem a human. You just have to pay some extra, like 20%, and you can redeem that person. But it seems because of the surrounding spiritual temperature, these other uh, groups, these other Canaanites, child sacrifice was a deal. That was a thing. And he just says, whether he knew, maybe he didn't know God's word. I, I don't know. But he didn't do anything about it. And so he lets his daughter go for a little while. Uh, after two months, she comes back and he puts her to death. He sacrifices her like the Canaanites around him would have done. So he, maybe he's a little rash. Um, Perhaps he was bargaining with God. He was trying to say, if I give you this sacrifice, will you do this for me? Possibly. But in any sense, this is your daughter we're talking about. And so a certain deadness had set into Jephthah, and compromise provided the illusion of comfortable living, he's living at status quo, yet led to a seared conscience and a decaying character where he could rationalize or justify or think it's okay to sacrifice his daughter. So what you're supposed to be picking up on in the book of Judges through these examples is the Lord's great faithfulness and kindness and mercy to intervene again and again and again. But you're also supposed to be noticing what is these, the condition, the spiritual condition of, these, of the people and the judges is showing you that things are getting worse. Worse and worse and worse. And so when you see a judge behave um, like Jephthah, 
you are okay if you say this could be characteristic now of the nation of Israel. We're being given um, like a proof. In this man, you see what's happening in Israel. So dullness has given way to deadness by the time the next cycle comes around. So at each the first step down is deadness. Cycle comes around again. We're beyond deadness now. We're down to, uh, uh, sorry, we start at dullness. Now we're at deadness in this next cycle that goes around. Well, now we have one of the most famous, when people say Book of Judges, oh yeah, I know about Samson. Here's Samson. <laughs> Samson the amazing. I mean, Samson, this is such an interesting story. Uh, I had a professor, he and I talked after class one time, and I said, do you think there's something weird going on with Samson's mother? And he said, uh-huh. Because you look at Sarah, she could not have children, the angel of the Lord shows up, and a very special child is born, Abraham. Hannah, who's coming up, Hannah can't have children. Angel Lord shows up. She has Samuel. This is one of these kooky cases where she cannot have children. The angel of the Lord shows up, and a very special child is born. In fact, he is to be a Nazarite from birth. So he can't have wine or grapes or anything, and he's got to let his hair grow long. I mean, he is a Nazarite. He is particularly set apart for the Lord and for his work from birth. Kind of like John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist's mother? She couldn't have children either. Zechariah goes in and says, the angel says, she's going to have a baby. And here comes John the Baptist. Samson is an amazing character, such great promise, such great potential. Ugh! He's a deliverer who couldn't deliver himself. He's a conqueror who couldn't conquer himself. He's a strong man who didn't know his own weakness. A man who lived to please himself, not God. After all these privileges that he's given, he he throws them all away. He just doesn't treat them like they should be treated. He allowed a woman, or, or two, <laughs> to entice him, control him, and then betray him. And so we've gone from dullness to deadness to enslavement by the time this spiral continues to twist in tighter and tighter. Compromising with sin eventually had, these are Warren Wiersbe's words, they're great, compromising with sin eventually had a blinding, binding, and grinding result in Samson's life. So true of sin. Blinding, binding, and grinding result of sin. Somehow, Samson seemed to be okay with this spiritual status quo. 
it gets better. Oh, no, it doesn't. The Danites. By the time we get to chapter 17, boy, it's just getting crazier all the time. Oh, I do think 1620 is a horribly sad verse. The second part of chapter 16, verse 20. She finally captures Samson because he tells her what the source of his strength is. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free, but he didn't realize the Lord had left him. So they gouge out his eyes and bind him with chains. He's grinding grain in the prison. But then this wonderful verse 22 of hope, but before long, his hair began to grow back. And you, if you were reading this for the very first time, you'd be thinking, okay, his hair is growing back. What's going to happen? And the Lord does more amazing things through him in his last self-sacrificing act than he had done in his whole entire life through Samson. So the Danites, the Danites come on the scene and things are just amuck. Um, we've got uh, Micah, and he says to his mother, uh, I heard you place a curse on the person who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from you. Well, I have the money. I was the one who took it. <laughs> and she said, oh, the Lord bless you for admitting it. <laughs> he returned the money to her, and she dedicates it, the silver coins, to the Lord. And honor my son, I will have an image carved and an idol cast. No, mom, <laughs> no, what are you doing? But Micah decides um, that that's an okay thing. Then uh, a Levite is walking around. Now, why would that be interesting? You go, who cares? Who is supposed to take care of the Levites? The people. The people are not taking care of the Levites, so the Levites, they've hit the road. They've got no food, they've got no shelter, they have no, no way to make a living because they had no land. Remember? They had a little bit. Maybe they could have raised some cows and goats, but they have no visible means of support because the people have stopped doing what they're supposed to be doing. I've got a Levite who's set apart by God to do certain things, and he's got nowhere to serve. And so he's just wandering around. And he happens to run into Micah, which is not such a good thing, but that's where he goes, and now he's at least got food and shelter. So in chapter 17, uh, beginning in verse 6, we begin to see a recurring phrase that goes through the end of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And this is repeated four, maybe five times before the end of the book of Judges. In fact, the last verse of chapter 21 is a repeat of that sentence. Most people believe that if it was Samuel writing the book, the next book that follows historically in this is the book of Samuel. Samuel was the final judge, perhaps desired to be the first king. God did not pick him for such. 
But it's possible that Samuel is trying to chronicle the history of the judges and into the monarchy. And so he begins, he's talking about this downward spiral and how bad things are getting. And then he says, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did that was right in their own mind. He's really beginning to highlight the fact that anarchy is happening. So beginning in 17, we start seeing this recurring phrase. 18, chapter 18. Now in those days, Israel had no king. And the tribe of Dan was trying to find a place where they could settle, for they had not yet moved into the land assigned to them when the land was divided among the tribes of Israel. Now this could be a couple hundred years. (laughs) After a couple hundred years, Dan still has no place to live. So what do they decide to do? They're going to go up north. Remember we, showed, we looked at that map, and why is Dan up at the top when their land was over here? This is where it happens. They finally decide, and what's, what's it, what does it say about the people who lived up there? They lived in security and in peace until Dan gets there and wipes them out. So Dan takes care of, so they move up north. It's just, it's just nuttiness is happening right now in the book of Judges in Israel. Nuttiness has broken out. So the Danites, and we go through this loop of the spiral, and each circle is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. There's confusion. They're calling evil good and calling wrong right. There's rampant idolatry. They left their inheritance for quote-unquote greener pastures. And as we talked last time, I think we showed the map, guess who's now on the front door for when all of the enemies from the north invade? That's right, Dan. (laughs) Hey, Dan, good idea. You want to move from this kind of safer place to this place? Great. Have it your way. Here come all the enemies. (laughs) They just keep coming over Dan. Over him and over him and over him. It's crazy. So they left their inheritance for quote-unquote greener pastures. They lived their own lives on their own terms under their own authority. And the spiral has tightened now to dissatisfaction. Compromise led to dissatisfaction with God's Word and God's will and then taking matters into their own hands. Dissatisfaction has begun to set in. Well, you'd think, we need a break, but we don't get one. Probably the, one of the worst stories of all is at the end. The Benjamites, uh, starting in 19. Now in those days, Israel had no king. Okay? And so... This uh, fella, um, he, this whole thing with, this, with his concubine is strange. Um, she, in the Hebrew, she plays the harlot. It's, different translations go different ways with it, but 
it really says she played the harlot. And so whether he sends her to her father's house or she goes to her father's house, in any event, she gets to her father's house. He goes and gets her after a few months. They're going back home. Not going to work out so well. It's, it's just a horrible, horrible story. They stop and spend the night. We see the advent. Basically, you are, if you are reading this, your mind is going straight back to the book of Genesis and the Sodomites. You're, you're going back to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what's happening when you're reading this. That's how far this downward spiral. It's, they're no longer like Israel. They are now like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's, I'm not sure that's why this is the last story, but this is horrible. The way they're treating each other. It's just horrible. It is so wrong. And yet... The Benjamites seem to be okay with it. They're grossly immoral and wicked. They're supremely self-confident. They're unashamedly self-reliant. They're arrogantly unrepentant. For them, the end justified the means. And so we've moved from dissatisfaction to now defiance. Habitual compromise made them indistinguishable from the Canaanites around them, and really even worse, the first thing that's supposed to pop into your brain is Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord is not happy with what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord is not happy with what is happening right here. And so how does the author leave this? In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. What are you left to conclude? We need a king. We need a king. Well, don't they have a king? Yes, they do. Guess what king they don't want anymore? Yahweh. We want a human king like everyone else has. This downward spiral, compromising with the Canaanites, living with them, living like them, giving room in their hearts for both Yahweh and idols has taken them from Israel, particularly under Joshua, and the spiral has gone all the way down until you look like those people who live in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's kind of the story of Judges. The status quo of compromise. Now, one thing I would say about the Israelites, it's always easy to shake my finger at the Israelites. You knuckleheads, how come you didn't know better? It's okay as long as I'm looking in a mirror and I see myself shaking a finger back in my own face. <laughs> But the status quo of compromise, I'm confident they never meant to grow lukewarm in their spiritual temperature or in their compromise with the Lord. I'm confident they never set out to say, I don't like being at 98.6, I can't wait to be at 45. I'm sure they didn't do that. But one compromise led to another. 
One new normal led to the next lower new normal, led to the next lower new normal, led to the next lower new normal. And so just increasingly, the slow leak of compromise made God's people become increasingly dull toward pursuing holiness, increasingly dead toward pursuing change, increasingly enslaved by sin, increasingly dissatisfied with and defiant toward God's Word and God's will. And so, bit by bit, Israel became less and less different from the Canaanites around them. It's a slippery slope from living with the Canaanites to living like the Canaanites. The status quo of compromise. Last week we talked about a divided heart. That's where this begins. There's a divided heart that leads then to compromise. The status quo of compromise, you might think of it as maybe better, it's the effect of compromise. So the status quo of compromise, let's say the spiritual temperature of those living around you. I don't necessarily mean your neighbors. I mean the people who hang out with you. You hang out with them the most. What would you say their spiritual temperature is? How much does that impact you? Are you living at that status quo? Do you feel dull or insensitive? Do you have a low urgency toward holiness? Do you feel dead toward pursuing change? Do you feel like you're enslaved to some particular sin, however small or respectable? Have you become dissatisfied and defiant toward God's Word and God's will? Are you a Frank Sinatra Christian? I did it my way. Are you no longer much different from the Canaanites around you? If I asked you this one question, what would you say? Where is God at work in your heart today? Your heart. Not mine. Not your spouse's. Not your neighbor's. Not your friend's. Not your co-worker's. Yours. Where is God at work in your heart today? What does God still desire? He's still looking for servants, looking for men and women who, like Othniel, will obey his word and walk in his spirit's power for good. He's looking for men like Ehud, who will go out of their way to do the dirty work no one sees for the sake of God's people. He's looking for women and men like Deborah and Barak, who doesn't want to go it alone, that give themselves to his service 
so his people might be set free. He's looking for Tola and Jair. They don't need the recognition and affirmation of men, but only the recognition and affirmation of their God, and they get in the game. He's still looking for people like Gideon, who will say yes to him in spite of knowing they have weaknesses, fears, or think they have nothing to offer. And he's even looking for someone like Samson, though at the end of his life, give themselves away to turn squander into victory. He's still looking for those kinds of people. I need to remind you and remind myself of some things. God so deeply loves us. Psalm 103. If you don't know Psalm 103, go ahead and flip over to Psalm 103. Look at what David writes. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart I will praise His holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things He does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. He revealed His character to Moses and His deeds to the people of Israel. And this is exactly how the Lord introduced Himself to Moses back in Exodus. The Lord... The Lord said this about Himself, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For His unfailing love toward those who fear Him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to His children, tender and compassionate to those who fear Him, for He knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom and die. The wind blows and we are gone as though we had never been here. But the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear Him. His salvation extends to the children's children of those who are faithful to His covenant, those who obey His commands. The Lord has made the heavens His throne. From there He rules over everything. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out His plans, listening for each of His commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve Him and do His will. 
Praise the Lord. Everything He has created, everything in all His kingdom, let all that I am praise the Lord. Who He is and how He feels toward you. I love verse 10. He has not treated us as our sins deserve. He didn't treat the Israelites as their sins deserved. Every time they cried out to him, he showed up. Exodus 34, 6, this is how God introduces himself to Moses. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. I heard one, uh, I think it was J. Vernon McGee, actually. If you've ever heard of J. Vernon McGee, he talked about the difference between love and loving kindness. And he said, love means a mother gives her child a piece of toast. That's love. He said, loving kindness is she also spreads jelly on it. (laughs) Something he didn't expect or doesn't really need. But it's just because it's loving kindness. This God abounds in loving kindness. And I think we just did a little study in Romans 5 through 8, which we kind of talked about, oh, all of these types of things. Sometimes we just need to be refreshed through mm, technology to see what our daddy is like. And so, this video has no sound to it. I just want you to watch it. You may have seen it before. The Christian life is a race. So we read in the book to the Hebrews. But after a while, some feel like they're just running in circles. Others get wounded in the race some way somehow. Others who haven't made much progress or feel as if they've disqualified themselves walk to the sidelines and drop out of the race, perhaps even thinking God is disappointed in them. But it's at that moment when you know you can't finish the race without help if at all, that your daddy, who comes down from the grandstands, puts your arm over his shoulder and walks you across the finish line. Even if all you can do is hobble over it. The race has never been about how far you can get by yourself. Rather, it's about how far your daddy and you can go. That is your daddy. That was the Israelites' daddy. They just didn't know him. And so this decline kept going and going and going. 
but you know him. And his spirit lives in you. And if you've torn your hamstring, you've become dull. All those things. And you think, I might as well head to the sidelines. Not so. Daddy's come down from the grandstands to put your arm around his shoulders. He's going to walk you across the finish line. Is your spiritual thermometer at status quo? If it is, tell God. He already knows it. Will you continue to live at the level of the Canaanites or at the level of your God? Are you satisfied with what you have or do you want what God has promised you? Where do you need to stop compromising with the Canaanites beginning this week? And will you make yourself unreservedly available to God this week for His purposes? The book of Judges. For next time, read the book of Ruth. Only four short chapters, and we're going to have a very special introduction to the book of Ruth next week, which I know will encourage you, and you'll enjoy it, and then we'll do the book of Ruth. So next week, come, four chapters of the book of Ruth, read, please. Let me pray for us. Ah, Daddy. Thank you. You don't set us out in this race and wait for us to finish. You remember that we are but dust, weak and frail. Thank you for coming down out of the grandstands and putting my arm around your strong, strong neck and walking me toward the finish line. I can't do this race apart from you. I confess so many days I try. Thanks for a great reminder with this book and this little short video of who you really are. We love you. I pray that you would do this for us, please, in each of our lives this week that we would know not only that you're pleased with us, but we would sense your presence right at our shoulder. We thank you. We do love you. And we pray for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. See you in a week.